Welcome to Story Archaeology's Stories in the Landscape Conversations on Mythology with Chris Thompson and Professor Patrick Nunn. Today I get to talk with Professor Patrick Nunn, Professor of Geography and Director of the Sustainability Research Centre, University of the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. Professor Nunn has focused research on the depth and longevity of oral traditions. Oh, Patrick, I am so delighted to get to talk with you at last. I'm delighted to be here. But tell us about yourself. Oh, I don't know if your listeners want to hear too much about me. I mean, oh, we do. We do. It's more about the, the, the kinds of things that I've been doing. But look, I, I was born and bred in the in the UK and sort of uh, grew up uh, hearing all sorts of stories that I were, I was told were were myths and legends and things like that. And of course, you believe it uncritically when you're when you're growing up. But um, I trained then as a geologist and a climate scientist, and uh, now I'm at the other end of my career. And uh, there's clearly a, a lot of things about so called myths and legends that really attract the attention of, I think, probably an open-minded geologist and uh, and climate scientist such as uh, I've become. And uh, I'm absolutely fascinated by these from all over the world. And my geological training in particular allows me to put ages or or plausible ages uh, on many of the oral traditions that underpin supposed myths and legends. And it's this that's attracted a fair bit of attention over the last uh, five or six years in, in particular, because a lot of the stories on which these myths and legends are, are based, you know, appear to be seven, eight, nine, even 10,000 years old, passed down largely orally uh, through time for that period. It, it's absolutely ground changing as far as I'm, I'm concerned. I came across your work I did, because of my interest in the Dinhyanika story of Shinnan. That was the subject of the very first Story Archaeology podcast. But it left Isolde and I with a conundrum. It seemed to tell a story of sea level change and inundation, set into writing only around 1100 years ago, possibly have survived 7,000 or more years. We were extremely hesitant to suggest such a proposition. And then, when in 2015, when we were revisiting this story, I read your article. Could you give us the title of that article? Oh, gosh, I can't remember the title. It was something about Australian Aboriginal stories of uh, of sea level rise or something like that. Uh, it just changed everything. We felt that here was someone who could provide a solid scientific evidence base for oral narrative longevity. We could now look outside the fields of philology and anthropology and archaeology. That's where we were going to find the data in in geography. And, And for me, that article just opened doors. You said a little bit about your interest in myths and legends as you were growing up. How did your interest in the importance of ancient narrative really get going um you know again i i don't want to sort of bore your listeners to to any great extent but i i grew up uh, in the uk myths and legends i trained as a conventional scientist and um have spent most of my career as a conventional scientist and i i, I still am at the same time I was fortunate to spend more than two decades uh, in the Pacific Islands uh, teaching and researching out of a base at the University of the South Pacific, which is an international university covering 12 uh, Pacific Island nations. And not only was the, the region very culturally diverse, but there were a lot of people in that region with whom I came into contact who privileged oral narratives above written ones. They couldn't read or write. They couldn't speak English. So they they passed on their knowledge as it had been done for thousands of years from one generation to the next by telling what we call stories. But these stories are in fact full of information about how to survive in different places and about the history of different peoples and so on and so on. So I became really interested in the power of oral narratives and the capacity of people who couldn't read or write, who weren't literate, to actually acquire and retain and organise information in their heads. And then finally, when I moved to Australia in in 2010, I started to read a lot of accounts of 
uh, Aboriginal or Indigenous Australian stories. And many of these were recalling events that geology and, and climate science could demonstrate uh, occurred thousands and thousands of years ago. And I thought to myself, well, you know, this aligns very much with my impression of what had been happening in the Pacific. And, you know, I'd like to do some more research on these. So so I did. And that's really what led to the 2015 uh, paper um, in the Australian Geographer. Only a year or so before, I'd been trying to talk to Australian anthropologists about possible longevity of story. In a way, Australia is my second home. I have family there. So I've been in Queensland quite a lot. And I thought it would be a chance to see how our, our Australian First Nation stories were regarded. But I couldn't find anybody who really wanted to talk about it until I came across your article. Well, I can tell you why that is, or why I think it is. It, it's because people didn't really want to confront the implications of that. I think literate people, people who can read or write, tend to suffer from what I call the arrogance of literacy. Mm. Not in a bad way, but just the idea that anything that can't be written down or can't be read is actually not of very much value. And that's clearly not the way things have been for most of the time that humans have, have been on Earth. Most of our ancestors uh, for, you know, most of human history communicated their knowledge from one generation to the next using using words and to a lesser extent art and things like that. And I think the, the very idea that uh, that an anthropologist might have had of supposing that this kind of information could have endured for thousands and thousands of years was so anathemic to you know what they'd been taught, which is that oral tradition don't have much capacity, they're, they're very, very short-lived and all this kind of thing. That was the kind of orthodox view about oral traditions. And you know, I reflect now, and I think perhaps it took a scientist like myself to come along and to say, well, this is how things appear to be, because I was never inculcated with that kind of belief mm. about oral traditions. Basically, I've, I've discovered what I've discovered for myself. You weren't suffering from what I know you call the tyranny of literacy. The old idea that really uh, an oral story could only last three generations. After that, it got unreliable. If you couldn't present scientific evidence, which in a way, in the humanities, it's much harder to do, you could only talk about it as a speculation, a possibility. Uh, absolutely. And, and, and I think it's really understandable. I, I, you know, I think if you are if you are raised in a literate society, then you are taught to privilege reading and writing. Why ever not? You're not taught to privilege the spoken word in, in the same way. And, and I often talk to my students these days and I say, look, how many telephone numbers can you remember? You, you know, and they, they can't remember any really. Don't need to. Because they just look on their smartphones and they, they, they press a button. So they don't need to. And I say, well, you know, even when I was young, sort of 40, 50 years ago, no, not 50 years ago, but I mean, you know, 40 years or so ago, I mean, you, you had to memorize people's telephone numbers or write them on a piece of paper and keep them in your back pocket because there was no other way of doing it. And I think if you go back sort of 200 or even 2000 years, you know, people had still got to remember things. And the way that they did it was to, to retain them in their heads in ways that we today adjudge instinctively adjudge improbable. I was thinking about the early Irish poets who were expected automatically to know 250 primary stories, so many secondary stories, genealogies, genealogies, stories of place names and how they came to be. And it was all part of what they had to hold in their heads. Absolutely. But tell me something, did you tr attract much comment from the humanities as you started to really work on this with, with books like Edge of Memory and Worlds in Shadow? How did the humanities people react? Well, I mean, I, as, an, as an academic, I sort of tend to write for academic audiences and then for non-academic audiences. And when I first started publishing this kind of thing, there was a lot of, <laughs> oh, you know, the, you know, he's completely uh, lost the, lost the plot talking about such things. <laughs> 
And so there was a fair bit of pushback uh, in academic circles, particularly from some of my colleagues. But the paper that you're talking about in 2015, you know, that one uh, paper of the year in the Australian Geographer when it was eventually published. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it made a bit of a splash like that. But then it also occurred to me that writing these kinds of things simply for an academic audience, particularly a largely unreceptive one, was perhaps not where I wanted to go. So that's really why I approached Bloomsbury and, uh, you know, uh, asked them if they would be interested in a book like The Edge of Memory, and uh, and obviously they were. So I was really, really delighted about that. And I've tried to write The Edge of Memory, or I tried to write The Edge of Memory in a way that it would appeal to non-specialists, and I don't say that in a derogatory way. I, I think uh, you know, I, I I work for a university, so I'm I'm publicly funded. Uh, my salary is paid by the taxpayer, and I think I also therefore have a responsibility towards the taxpayer to explain um, in ways that they can understand what it is I'm doing and why I think it's important and what implications it has. So mm. yes, there was a bit of pushback from some of my colleagues. Perhaps more in the sciences than in the in the humanities. I think a lot of the humanities just thought, oh, here's another another geoscientist gone off the rails, you know, and he's sort of foaming at the mouth and talking about this kind of nonsense. But it's it's not. The great thing about being a scientist is that you don't tend to open your mouth or put pen to paper unless you can verify what it is that you're writing about. And I think it's fair to say I did have you know, a couple of moments of hesitation, particularly in Australia, when I realized that the Aboriginal stories that I were reading, I was reading, did actually recall events that had to have taken place more than 7,000 years ago, perhaps even further back in time. Um, and I realized that that proposition would be radical. And I realized that a lot of my colleagues and, you know, other academics in particular would, uh, would judge my conclusions as implausible. So I was very careful to explain exactly how I put ages uh, on some of these stories, mm -hmm. but also to list, uh, list lots of caveats. I, I, I think one problem with this kind of, not experimental science, but one problem with this kind of radical science is that people uh, often jump ahead of themselves and, and they don't they don't provide the kinds of support that they would provide if they were writing science, for example. Mm. So um, I was very careful to explain how I got to these particular conclusions and to explain potential shortcomings of, of my approach. But look, that all said, uh, Chris, once, once it was out there and people started reading it, then, you know, essentially a lot of most of the feedback I've had has been fairly positive uh, and fairly complimentary. And I haven't lost, I haven't lost my job yet. So I think. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it, I, I do think it's really important. You said to me almost exactly the same as Professor Ralph Kenner said when he was working with myths and maths that, well, follow the data. And that you, I think you said the same thing that you were following the data. Absolutely, absolutely. I had a I had a very good um, mentor who who once uh, told me, "Let the data speak. Nothing else matters. Just let the data speak. Don't bring your preconceived ideas to a particular problem. Mm. Just get in there, mine the data, and let them let let the data speak for itself." Yeah, I think these cross discipline approaches seem to yield a lot of new avenues of research and examination of what might have otherwise been regarded merely as out-of-the-box ideas. I think we need more of this, what Ian Hodder used to refer to as many voices, multivocality, having people working together from different disciplines. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Now, another thing that when I read your 2015 article also caught my attention was the rich treasure of the indigenous Australian stories that you were using as evidential support for story longevity. Now, I've already mentioned that I have a strong connection with Queensland. I can't help it. I'm always talking about it. <laughs> a year or so before I read your article, I'd had the chance to spend a bit of time in the Northern Territories around Kakadu and the Litchfield area. I had a chance to see a few of these sites, but I was wondering if you could select just two or three examples of your favourite stories to demonstrate narrative longevity. From, from Australia? 
Yes. Well, you mentioned Northern Territory, and and I think that's where the richest and most authentic Indigenous cultures are still in place and connected to country, connected to the land that they and their ancestors have occupied for, for thousands of years. We think at the moment that the first people to arrive in Australia must have arrived around about 70,000 uh, years ago, and it would almost certainly have been that part of Australia where they arrived. So it's that part of Australia that has the longest cultural continuity. And I, I was doing research for a book chapter uh, recently and came across a community called Maningrida in the Northern Territory. It's a coastal community. And someone from the local school uh, got in contact with me and they'd read The Edge of Memory. And they, and they said, look, our indigenous elders also have a story they want to tell. And that story is about this island offshore. It's what? You know, a couple of miles uh, offshore. And they have a story about when people could walk from the mainland to that island. And uh, it was all part of the mainland. And then gradually the, the connection got covered with water uh, as the ocean rose. And uh, they were wondering whether that story had any, any merit to it. And I said, look, you bet. So we, we made arrangements for the school teacher to actually collect several versions of that particular story, which we now estimate to be about seven and a half thousand years old. That was the last time when the sea level was low enough to connect the island offshore with the mainland at Maningrida. So or I also am doing some research at the moment with indigenous groups in the southern part of Australia, particularly in the area south of Adelaide. These stories are all about a time when offshore Kangaroo Island was connected to the mainland and people could walk across from the mainland to Kangaroo Island. And it talks about this man, Gurunduri, and he, he was chasing his two wives along the south coast of the Fleuria Peninsula. And when they got to a particular place, then they were able to walk across to what is now Kangaroo Island. And when Gurunduri caught up with them about a day later, he saw them sort of halfway across what is now an ocean gap. And he summoned the waves to come up and drown his uh, his wives. And they got washed out to sea and they, they became islands. That kind of story, which many indigenous groups in the southern part of Australia know about, that type of story recalls calls events that we estimate to be just over 10,000 years old. So the implications are that that story has been passed down as an oral tradition effectively for 10,000 years across, what, 400, 500 generations, depending on how you, you measure it. That's quite extraordinary, but it's clearly not unprecedented. We've got stories now from 32 places all the way around the, the coast of Australia that say essentially the same thing. And then the third example I'll give you is, is, is about a volcano. So Australia is not famous for its volcanoes, but uh, since people have been in Australia for the last 70,000 years or so, there's been several volcanoes in the eastern part of Australia that have erupted and people would have observed them erupting. Uh, and we find stories that are associated with those eruptions. And I've got a, a research student, Lee Franks, working on one of these groups of stories at the moment, and it's from a place called Kinrara in northern Queensland. And the local uh, Gugubadun people have several stories that talk about volcanic eruption at Kinrara. And they talk, for example, about how the water courses filled with fire which seems to me to be a clear memory of lava pouring out of this volcano and, and filling up the river valleys and moving down slope. But they also talk about things that we couldn't possibly have discovered simply through science. So some of the Gugubadun stories talk about this witch doctor who made this great pit in the ground, and then he stirred and stirred and stirred in this pit, and the gases and the, the, the material that rose up out of this pit spread across the landscape and asphyxiated people. People couldn't see where they were going. It was so dense. So that that's a typical volcanic hazard. But like I say, it's not one that we could have demonstrated for the last eruption of Kinrara, mm. which, since you ask, was about 7,000 years ago. So we know that the Gugubadun stories must date from around 7,000 years ago. It's hard to explain the story of the uh, the toxic gases in any other way, unless there was some sort of memory there. Absolutely, you can't. You can't do it, yeah. And of course, in Edge of Memory, you talk about more recent stories, and I really wanted to ask you about your expertise and experience of 
Pacific Island cultures. I didn't realise you spoke Fijian. So perhaps you could just select a couple of those stories as well. <laughs> okay, you, you would like me to say them in uh, English? Uh... I think that would probably be better. <laughs> Just for any of your Fijian listeners. Um, but yes, yes, I spent a long time in the Pacific and people haven't been in the Pacific as long as they have been in Australia or in, or in Europe. Basically, the first Pacific people arrived there about just over 3,000 years ago. But they still have lots of stories. And the, the one that we've been doing quite a lot of uh, research on recently is the story of a volcanic eruption in uh, in the Kandavu group of southern Fiji. And this volcano called Nambukalevu, which means the uh, the giant yam mound. So when people in Fiji plant yams, they, they make a mound of soil and plant the yams inside. So this looks just like a, a, a gigantic mound uh, in which you would plant yams. Uh, so Nambukalevu last erupted around about 2,500 years ago. And there are stories uh, on the island of Kandavu in almost every community that you visit. And it's it's a well-populated uh, island, very traditional in many ways. But we've now collected uh, 13 different versions of the story of this 2,500-year-old eruption. And I have another PhD student, Loredana Lancini, who's actually working on analyzing the differences between those stories. And what she's finding is that the communities closer to the volcano have quite different stories from the ones further away. And the essence of these stories is that there were two rival gods, if you wish. In Fijian, the word is, is vu, vu, which means ancestor. But it's a kind of ancestor with a difference, with sort of magical powers and things like that. So there were two gods, one in the volcano and one sort of 50 kilometers away on another island. And the one 50 kilometers away used to like to sit on the beach every afternoon and watch the, the sun go down in the west. And one day he found his view blocked by this monstrosity that had grown up and blocked out the setting sun. So he got really angry and he flew across to Nambukulevu and he uh, started to to fight the, the god of the volcano. And a lot of the details of that particular fight are consistent with a volcanic eruption. I'll give you one example. One of the gods was being beaten and, and so went and hid underneath the sea. Uh, and so the other god came along realizing where his rival was and, and sucked up the sea, drank the sea. And that's clearly a memory of a tsunami. Yes. You know, the, the water retreating. And you get that kind of thing in volcanic eruptions because you get massive landslips going into the ocean, uh, causing uh, tsunamis. You get earthquakes and things like that. So there's a lot of a lot of material there as well. There's so many details that you couldn't have if they weren't memory held over generations. They're very good examples. Something that I just noticed as you were talking about both the Australian and the Pacific Island cultures, you mentioned that you were collecting several versions of the same story. And it just struck me in passing that a lot of the Irish stories were collected and written down all around a thousand years ago to save them from disappearing under, shall we say, Norman influence. There are several versions of a story collected, and I find that's interesting. It su suggests that there were different versions that all told the same story. Well, absolutely, and, and I think we can prove that from the, the particular study that I've just described. And I think that's the difference between oral societies and literate societies. As soon as you write a oral, an oral story down, it becomes the version. And there is no purpose in writing down a, a rival version of that story. But in oral cultures, these kinds of stories are many and they differ depending on who's telling them. They differ depending on where they're being told, to whom they're being told and that kind of thing. So stories in oral societies are dynamic. You know, in a way, as soon as you write something down, then that becomes the story. It's fixed. It's fixed. And it can't incorporate any more elements to it. And I'm not saying one is, is necessarily better than the other, but they are different. So yes, uh, in both the Australian and the Pacific uh, examples, and to some extent in the European examples, there there are different versions of what must be the same tradition based on the same set of observations that have evolved 
through time along different pathways to get to us today. What you were talking about made me realise that in some ways the Dinyanicus collection of stories, although now fixed, were, were collected by people who understood the dynamic nature of the narrative story and were putting down the different versions. Absolutely. Mm. You've given me a reason to see it as perhaps more important that those different versions still exist. Yes. Yes, of course, but you've got to think of the context. So today, when we want to learn a particular story, we'll read one version. Why would we read two versions or three versions or four versions? Because we've lost the context in which the oral traditions were, were told. Yeah, but at the time of the, the collating of the Dindyalicus, they were still aware of that di dynamism, which um, is just an, inter it's an interesting thought. Well, and, and it's still in Fiji in, in 2019, because what my, my research student is doing is actually analysing the different versions of the stories and, and seeing how, how they reflect, you know, the priorities of different groups and as well as the location, things like that. So different versions, are they have a purpose um, and that purpose is really interesting. Further exploration as to the deeper significance of the Dinhenica story variants might be worth undertaking. So that's really very helpful. From what you're saying, it's clear, though, that these were far more than just ancestor hero stories or general genealogical status stories. Yes, I mean, I, I was just going to say, I mean, when you learn about myths and legends, you you are looking at the surface of a story. You're not looking at the the hidden or the deeper meaning of a particular story. And, and I find the assumption behind calling something a myth or a legend quite extraordinary. The idea that our ancestors a thousand, two thousand years ago actually had enough leisure time to sit around and to write works of fiction in their head and then transmit them on. I, I mean, that strikes me as extraordinary. It was all about survival. Um, and that's what's absolutely clear from our studies of the Australian stories and the Pacific stories, is that uh, in particular places, particularly those where the environments are quite harsh and survival is not guaranteed, it's really important that each new generation is inculcated with all the knowledge that their ancestors have passed down and that their parents or their grandparents actually know, because that knowledge is giving them the best chance of survival. You know, where to find water when there's a drought, what to eat when food runs short, what to do when there's a flood, what to do when there's a hurricane or something like that. What ethnographic accounts, particularly from Australia, show is that Indigenous Australians, Aboriginal Australians, had this very complicated system by which different patrilines, different kin groups would cross-check each other's uh, understanding or knowledge of particular stories, because it was all about survival. Mm. And so they had to be memorable. They had to be capable of crossing whole generations. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, and we know it with education today. I mean, there's there's two ways you can educate someone. You can uh, you can say you've got to learn this, you must learn this, or you can engage uh, learners and you can say, I'm going to tell you a story and that story has meaning. It's it's a it's a parable or, or whatever. And and I think that it was exactly the same in the past, that certain types of stories were told to children and the children had to know them. But there were other types of stories, particularly around history, that seemed to have been embellished in ways that would make them memorable. And can I just give you a quick example here, Chris, from, from particularly from Celtic cultures? Oh, do. So stories of giants, you know, they've, they've permeated contemporary narrative in many ways. But to me, stories about giants plausibly originated when the sea level was rising uh, in the aftermath of the last ice age and land connections were being drowned. They were being submerged. One example, it used to be possible when people were living in Wales to walk across to Ireland, walk across what is now the Irish Sea to Ireland because the sea level was low enough to uh, allow that. Then the sea level rose and drowned the connection. People could no longer walk across, but people told stories about when it had been possible to walk across the Irish Sea. And as time went on, those stories became less and less 
plausible in their retelling. Uh, and audiences thought, oh, yes, a very, very unlikely story. So the people became giants because that was one way of rationalizing a story after the circumstances had changed. So after the sea had risen and drowned the land connection between Wales and Ireland, then any stories about when it was possible for people to walk across that gap, those people had to be giants who could stride like Bran. They could stride across the Irish Sea. And that, I think, really is where giants became invented. But look, let's continue on the theme of how story longevity has been effectively achieved. Good stories kind of stick in our heads. Dramatic characters, unexpected motifs, unusual details. They're the ones that just stay with us. It would seem, I suppose, that humans are kind of hardwired for stories. Yes, yes. And I suppose it's stories that have helped us to develop our sense of the past and therefore also the future. I was also struck by something you wrote in Edge of Memory, where you talked about landscape-shaped culture. Oh, I do like that term. You were saying that Australian rock art works a bit like a book. Yes. So I, I think when you've had an oral tradition being passed down for thousands and thousands of years, sometimes the storytellers might start to not remember certain details properly. So I think that people who couldn't read or write, they developed other memory aids uh, such as rock art. So, you know, again, we look at rock art in Australia and elsewhere in the world. We, we look at it as as an aesthetic production. But I would argue that it was created as me with meaning. It was created so that people would remember key details of particular stories. Can I just jump back to something you just said, Chris? Yes, of course. Which was about narrative being hardwired in the human psyche. And I absolutely agree with that. You know, and, I, and I've been thinking about that for a long time, that like many people of my generation, I, I was a voracious reader as a, as a young person. You know, I've still got hundreds of, of books that I, I absolutely treasure. And I think that people's love of narrative is something that has its roots in oral traditions. You gathered around the fireside in the evening and the old people told stories. And this was something that something that people looked forward to. It's something that gave people a purpose and a meaning. And, and I think it embedded our love of narrative in, in the human psyche. Uh, and of course, that, that continues today with sort of people, you know, watching television programs, movies and things like that. It certainly does. All the hype over things like Game of Thrones. All, all the hype, yes, yeah. Thinking about the idea of rock art acting as an aid memoir reminded me of a personal experience. I think it was somewhere near Litchfield. I was introduced to stories in the local landscape recorded on one rock shelter. The guide introduced us to the characters and told us these images were around 20,000 years old. But he also drew our attention to a nearby plaque showing a picture of the artist who had painted them in 1968. Later, I asked the guide whether he meant that the artist repainted them in 1968, and he said no, he painted them in 1968. There was a bit of a does-not-compute moment, and then I suddenly got it. If I went into a bookshop to buy a Jane Austen novel or a Shakespeare play, I wouldn't think of turning it down if I was off offered a newly published edition. No, the work would still be authentic. The literate world seems to have different relationships with visual and written work. I, I agree, yes. I, and I think that we today, particularly in literate societies, we regard art as uh, an aesthetic culture defining production and it's something that requires appreciation a sense of the aesthetic rather than a sense of the practical but i think we have repurposed art and i think that if you dig back into the origins of art and we would find that the origins of art lie very much in pragmatic memory aids for 
people in oral societies. You, you know, again, why would you invest so much time in producing something unless there was meaning associated with it? I don't think that our pre-literate ancestors were in any sense arbitrarily creative. I, I think they were 100% practical. Mm-hmm. And nowadays, we are so used to the idea that art is valued either by age or the fame of the individual artist. That, that, that's right. And look, one random example that I, I came across recently, the national airline of Fiji is Fiji Airways. Um, and they wanted to put some traditional designs on the sides of their plane, paint them. And they found some designs that they believed to be sort of contemporary, but at the same time authentic. There were a number of complaints because people were saying, well, yes, these are authentic in the sense that they go back 3000 years and that they originally in this part of Fiji, you know, how, how can you just then take them and put them on the side of a plane? You know, and it's the same way really as your Shakespeare first edition or your or the one that was printed last week. Art has a purpose, has has meaning. It has context. And it has context, yeah. Yeah. You also, in Edge of Memory, talked about the importance of poetry and dance in story transmission. Could you give examples of this as well? Oh, absolutely. I, I'm not sure I can give an example, but if you just think about it, in an oral society, nobody's reading or writing. How do you communicate knowledge? Well, you can speak it, but what if your what if your words become boring? What if your audience isn't paying attention? Then you enliven it, you exaggerate it. And what if the audience then is still not paying attention? Then you perform it. Okay? So that's why storytellers are great performers. They 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 stand up and they dance around and they move and they mimic people and uh, and they make the audience laugh while they're telling the story. So their performance is a vehicle, if you like, for a particular narrative. And it's exactly the same thing putting it into into verse. It's exactly the th- same thing as as dancing it. Yeah, there are many different ways to express it. The earliest stories in Ireland were also passed on through poetry. So, yeah, I think there's so much evidence for that. Mm, I agree. I've had a lot of pleasure giving storytelling shows around Brisbane over the years, along with some of my puppet friends who all have their own stories. One of them is a frog. The trouble is I can't tell his story because it was originally an Australian story. And although the way I tell it in Ireland is very different, I'm aware of its origin in Australia and I would never tell it because it's not my story. You talk a lot about ownership of particular stories by kinship families and how this was advantageous to transmission. This is something that you find particularly in Australia. There is knowledge that can be shared. There's knowledge that can't be shared. There is knowledge that is gendered. Um, it, it can be shared with women or amongst women, but not among, not with men, uh, and vice versa. And yes, I think it's absolutely right to be extremely sensitive around this kind of thing. And it's very difficult when you deal with stories to escape the criticism associated with it. You know, as a non-Indigenous Australian, I have been criticised by Indigenous Australians for talking about their stories, even though all the stories that I've talked about are are, are already published that said, I've also had some very, very influential uh, Indigenous Australians uh, come out and publicly support the kind of research I, I'm doing. So th- there's a bit of both. But I- I'd like to sort of maybe just sort of talk about other places uh, and the ownership of stories. In the Pacific Islands, I've never encountered a situation in which people wouldn't tell me their stories and give me permission to share those stories. It's it's not something that seems to be a Pacific trait. And and fair enough. And then, of course, you have the other situation, as you do in parts of Ireland and Scotland and, uh, and, and Wales, Cornwall, Brittany, you know, where stories have lost their connection, by and large, to particular kinship groups. And you can tell them and you can write about them and you can analyse them, I think. I have discovered hints of it in Ireland. Back in 1998, I was undertaking a schools project celebrating the bicentennial of the 1798 Irish Rebellion. It was suggested I make a visit to a local family who retained the memory of the 98. They were the guardians of this story in the area. I think the tradition has been largely lost in the last 20 years or so. Yes, yes. But could you give us some idea of how, as a geographer, you go about dating these stories? Well, absolutely. 
let, let me let me start with a story. So 7,600 years ago, there was a huge volcano in the western United States in what we now call Oregon. And it was called, well, it wasn't called, we don't know what it was called, but uh, today we call it Mount Mazama. And it blew itself to pieces uh, 7,600 years ago and created the landform that today we call Crater Lake in Oregon. It's a great tourist attraction. Now, the local people living there at the time that we now call the Klamath Native Americans, K-L-A-M-A-T-H, they had an oral tradition of this event that they passed on. And when the first Europeans got to the area in what the mid to late uh, 20th century, they, they were told the stories by the Klamath. And they were said there used to be a big volcano here. Um, it used to be really tall and then it blew itself up and it all collapsed and formed this uh, this huge lake here. And uh, several years later, geologists went along and they said, yep, absolutely right. There used to be a huge volcano here. We can look at the material that used to comprise this volcano and using a technique known as potassium argon dating, we can actually develop a really precise age for the terminal eruption of Mount Mazama. And that uh, age turns out to be 7,600 years ago, which then has to be an age or at least a minimum age for the transmission of that particular story by the Klamath uh, over time, which is extraordinary by itself. So that's a really good example of how geology can provide very precise information about the age of particular stories. I've done some research, including the one that I mentioned earlier on Kinrara with the Gugubadun people. Volcanic eruptions tend to be quite uh, straightforward to put an age on. But uh, a lot of my research has also been on what I call post-glacial sea level change. So just to give you some context, the last great ice age reached a maximum around about 20,000 years ago. That was the coldest time within the last you know, 120,000 years or so. Uh, and the ocean surface at the time of this the maximum of this ice age was around about 125, 130 meters lower than it is today. So over 400 foot, 400 feet lower than it is today. After the ice age ended, then the ice that was on the land started to melt and the meltwater flowed into the sea, raising its level. Also, temperatures started to warm and the upper parts of the ocean expanded because when you warm water, it expands. So for both of these reasons, but particularly because of the meltwater, sea level started to rise in the aftermath of the last ice age. And in most parts of the world, in fact, not around most of Ireland, but in most other parts of the world, the ocean surface rose between about 15,000 years ago and 7,000 years ago, including around Australia. When we read Aboriginal stories about sea level rise around Australia, we are looking at stories that must be a minimum of 7,000 years old. They must have been passed on for at least 7,000 years, because that is the time at when sea level, the ocean surface, reached its present level around Australia. So anything that recalls a time when it was lower must be more than 7,000 years old. We also know very precisely how sea level changed in the post-glacial era around Australia. So if we have a story like the one from Maningrida, like the one about Kangaroo Island, we can say, right, well, what is the minimum depth of the ocean at which this story could have been true? So when someone could have walked from the Australian mainland to Kangaroo Island, when was the last time that would have been possible? And in the case of Kangaroo Island, we know it's just over 10,000 years ago. That's the last time a so-called land bridge would have existed between the two that people could have crossed. And therefore, that gives us a minimum age, because the story might be older, gives us a minimum age for that particular story. Now, there's a lot of uncertainties in, in, in this approach, and I, I think it's you know, you can read in the book about about some of those uncertainties. But I think that the approach is robust and I think that the kinds of conclusions are are also plausible based on the information that, that we have. So 
that's basically how we can how we can put ages on uh, on these stories. Thanks. That was really clear. Um, I would, if it's all right with you, I I really would like to ask briefly about the Shinnan story, which set me going. This is a story of a young poet who wants to save her people when they're under stress and she needs the power of poetry to do this. So she goes to this liminal space, a well at the bottom of the sea, and there she sings and the great bubbles rise up and it becomes a huge wave that rises up and covers the land. And although uh, she is lost in the wave, uh, it creates a new life for her people. It is told as the creation of the greatest river in Ireland, the River Shannon. Now, this clearly implies a tsunami which destroys the places, the Makalans on the edge of the west coast of Ireland, and how they find a new home on this very fertile river. Okay. I, I mentioned earlier that Ireland was somewhat different to most parts of the world. And in fact, most of the Atlantic coasts of northwest Europe, sea level rise after the last ice age did not end 7,000 years ago, but has continued, albeit at a slightly reduced rate, up until the present day. So that, I think, is why there are so many stories of submerged lands off the west coast of Ireland, you know, and particularly in the Outer Hebrides of, of Scotland and places like that. And of course, off the coasts of Brittany and in northwest France, there's, there's probably about 15 different stories that, that I've uh, found there. And these stories will not necessarily be more than 7,000 years old, but just because the sea level has continued to rise, then they could be younger than that. We did some uh, research with some uh, some French archaeologists uh, looking at the stories of the uh, about Is, the city YS, uh, and that's in the Baie de Douarnenez on the Atlantic coast of Brittany. If those stories are true, and if the location is correct, those stories are probably more than 8,000 years old. So we have comparable stories in Northwest Europe to those that we have around the coast of all, all parts of the coast of Australia. You you talked about the, the Shinnan stories. And look, as soon as you told me that story, Chris, I just thought, Absolutely. This is this is a, a recollection of a tsunami and, and a fairly sizable tsunami. I don't have to be right, but I mean, one of the biggest tsunamis that uh, in the geological record that occurred uh, that affected humans was the Storega tsunami off the coast of Norway that occurred around about uh, 7,000, 8,000 years ago. Uh, and there's a lot in the edge of memory and worlds in shadow about it. That tsunami which was really caused by the abrupt collapse of a huge chunk of the Norwegian continental shelf, sent tsunami waves out across neighbouring coasts. They swept across the Faroe Islands. They they swept across uh, the uh, the Orkneys. They are estimated to have been 20 metres high when uh, they, they hit the Shetland and the Orkney Islands. And this is a 20-metre wall of water as tough as as a cement wall slamming at you know uh, 80 80 miles an hour into the coasts of of these islands this would have been an incredibly memorable event and by the time uh, it it got around to ireland and i'm sure it did get around to ireland you would have had stories of abrupt submergence very very similar to the ones that the Shinan stories are, are, are describing, and it would have changed coastal geographies. Yeah, so I, I would favour the fact that a lot of these types of stories are in fact coded memories, events that were observed by people in the past, our ancestors. Are there any of the post-glacial sudden meltwater events that might have impacted on the Atlantic coast of Ireland? Well, it's another cause of a of a huge wave that um, that washed across many coasts in Europe, uh, and, and including many in the Mediterranean. So, in the aftermath of the last ice age, as temperatures were rising, so the ice that was on the land started to melt. Now, where it could, the water from that ice found its way to the ocean and caused the surface of the ocean to rise. But much of that so-called melt water couldn't 
get to the ocean. So it became ponded in the center of the continents. And you had these massive lakes forming in the center of continents, like, like the center of Canada, like the center of what today we call Russia. Massive lakes, far, far bigger than any that exist there today, that had formed as a result of the melt of ice that had previously sat over the land there. And eventually, there was a breach that allowed these lakes to drain into the ocean. And they drained very quickly into the ocean. It's like sort of pulling the plug out of a bath. You know, the water drained away really, really quickly into the ocean, where it generated massive waves that spread out in all directions. And the west coast of Ireland would have certainly been in the firing line of uh, of the collapse of Lake uh, Glacial Lake Agassiz uh, in uh, in Canada. Now that's extremely clear and helpful. Thank you. I think it, this is a this is a kind of relevant topic as well. It, it seems that there are some powerful ecological messages that are still available to us from the distant past. Yes, I, I think so, and I've been thinking about this as well. That this is not simply an academic exercise to understand particularly you know how the sea level changed in the past and how it affected people in the past because we today are being affected by sea level rise in almost every part of the world's coast and there is growing anxiety about the future and i i, I talk to my students a lot about this kind of eco-anxiety and you know one of the things that i'm at pains to talk to them about is how it's not something new. So when we talk about climate change, the Earth's climate has been changing for as long as people have have been here and, and, and long, long before. So climate change is completely normal. What is unprecedented or largely unprecedented in the modern era is the pace at which things are things are warming up, the pace at which the sea level is rising. But you can go back seven or eight thousand years and you can find parallels to uh, things changing at this kind of pace and inconveniencing the people that lived there at the time, some of whom have, you know, included in their stories, particularly from Aboriginal Australia, included in their stories information about what they, what they felt. They, they feared that the sea might cover the entire land and what they did, um, how they went and they built structures to try and stop the encroachment of the ocean uh, on the land. So all these kinds of things. So, you know, without trivializing what's happening to us today, I think we can take heart from the fact that climate change is survivable. Because if it wasn't survivable, we wouldn't be here. But the danger of that kind of message is, of course, then it encourages complacency. Our ancestors survived climate change at a great, great cost. They had to adapt in ways that modern humanity appears quite resistant to. You know, they, they had to move from the places that they lived to other places and they had to do this time and time and time again as we will surely have to do as the 21st century unfolds yeah it's it's awareness that change is inevitable but the rate of change is what matters to us at the moment that we we don't want to increase that rate of change or increase the severity of change precisely precisely that's the only way that we can we can involve ourselves. I agree. I find it interesting that the Irish stories in the late 19th and early 20th century served as important national narrative. So you get all the stories of the great tragic heroes. But now when people read the same stories, it, it, the ecological information seems to be what is speaking to people. If you disobey the laws that keep the land in balance, well, you kind of suffer from it. All these legends always encode information and they're still relevant. And that's what I find fascinating. But there was one thing that struck me in the introduction of Worlds in Shadow was there you mentioned something that I've also been interested in is how false or, shall we say, deliberately created stories can also be made to stick. And since this is a kind of currently relevant topic, I just wondered what you thought about that. Yes, I think human weakness for narrative can be our Achilles heel in many ways, you know, in the sense that someone can make up a story and represent it as genuine and it can influence behavior 
in in a way that benefits the storyteller. And I, I'm very interested in false narratives around climate change, for example. In fact, just yesterday, uh, I had a piece uh, published in the conversation uh, about this. You know, why are why do people deny climate change? Well, mostly they deny it because it conflicts with their philosophy of life. It it conflicts with what they believe is normal. I've, I've been working with a psychologist called Rachel Sharman, and we've been trying to understand climate change denial. You know, it's absolutely fascinating why people deny the facts. Often they confuse observations and cause. They say, I don't believe that humanity can possibly be causing the climate to change. Therefore, I deny the evidence of climate change. So they're creating, a, you know, an alternative narrative that is demonstrably untrue. But there are many people who want to hear that narrative. There are many people who want to be told that, you know, climate scientists like me, you know, are, are fraudsters, you know, and that we're inventing all this to... Making it all up. Absolutely. We're making it all up, you know, to benefit our back pockets. Well, I can guarantee you that uh, that we're not. Um, this this from someone who who doesn't who doesn't own their own house. So yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's uh, that's not relevant. But uh. <laughs> yes, there are plenty of people throughout history whose effective and popularist false stories have far outlasted them. Julius Caesar and his Gallic War reports come to mind, along with my own bet noir. Gerald of Wales, whose 12th century calumnies on the Irish people have echoed unpleasantly right down the centuries. Yes, a deliberately created full story can prove sticky. I can't resist giving you, a, giving you my, my story about this. In the Pacific Islands, there's an island called Niue, N-I-U-E. And for many, many years, it had the name uh, of Savage Island. And this all went back to Captain Cook. When Captain Cook landed on Nui, the first European to uh, ever do so, the people had been eating red bananas. So their faces, their mouths in particular, were were crimson. Uh, and he assumed that they'd been eating human flesh. Oh. And he quickly sort of upstakes and he, he went off. And on his map, he wrote Savage Island because the people of Niue had been eating red bananas. And it stuck, the reputation stuck for, for decades and decades and decades. And it's only really um, recently been uh, worked out. We're having to be so careful about what we read, how we understand it, how we believe it, the prevalence of fake news, conspiracy theories. It's, it's extremely relevant. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So I, I, I really was very glad you put that in and uh, I think it's fascinating because I do believe in the strength and power of story just as you do and absolutely it can work both ways sometimes <laughs> look this has been absolutely brilliant and I wanted to say thank you you've given me confidence in my assertion that the story of Shinnan tells a really old story but before we conclude have you any further upcoming projects that you'd like to talk about Oh gosh, there's there's always a lot on a lot going on my plate. I have a new project starting up in the Pacific Islands, looking at traditional knowledge about climate change. So, how did people before the Pacific Islands became part of a globalized world? How did people there understand when the climate was changing? What? How did they read the clouds? How did they read the waves? How did they read insect behavior or bird behavior and things like that? And uh, no one has really documented this properly before. So yes, we, we've got uh, a, a new research grant to to look at that. But look, in terms of my writing, uh, Chris, one of the things that I've become very interested in recently are stories of thin places, like Iona in Scotland, are termed thin places because it was said that you could go there and that the uh, the barrier between the the material world and the spiritual world was so so thin that that it would really allow you to talk to uh, to God or to the gods in in a way that you you couldn't in in other places. Um, and I think there are parallels in many other parts of the world to to thin places in in Scotland and Ireland. Oh, now this really is exciting. I think Colm Kill, that Irish prince, warrior, and of course monk who founded Iona, must have brought the stories of the other world with him. The Irish other world 
was kind of an ever-present place, but that existed in parallel to the everyday world. It could be reached unexpectedly through all the liminal spaces, like a cave, a mist, or a sudden snowstorm, a well on an island in a river. And later, in the Imrova, those tales created by the monks themselves, islands encountered beyond the sea's horizon. They were all strange and magical places, but sometimes it could be difficult to get back without experiencing time shifts, quite considerable time shifts. I think the entire island of Ireland is one thin place. So we really must have a further conversation at some point soon. <laughs> well, that, that would be my pleasure. My pleasure, Chris, because I, I've really enjoyed this, really enjoyed this. <laughs> I've really enjoyed it, and I hope your listeners have uh, got something out of it as well. Thank you. Oh, I'm sure we all have. Patrick, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this Stories in the Landscape conversation. Remember, on www.storyarchaeology.com, you will be able to access the whole archive of Story Archaeology podcasts. You can also explore a wide selection of my audio and video stories for children, as well as a range of project and support materials for schools. Also, discover information on a number of international arts events and competitions with which Story Archaeology is closely linked. There will be another Stories in the Landscape conversation along soon.